If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder welcome to the history extra podcast Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Masters of the Air is Apple TV Plus's big budget follow-up to Band of Brothers and the Pacific. Exec produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, it follows the exploits of the 100th Bomb Group, charting the vital role played by American airmen in the run-up to D-Day. The series draws its inspiration from a book of the same name by Donald L. Miller. And Kev Lochin spoke to Donald about what it was really like to fly in a B-17 flying fortress during a bombing mission in World War II. Donald, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Your book is the story of American involvement in the bomber war in World War II. Um, Apple TV+. Plus show Masters Year zones a bit more on the escapades of the 100th Bomb Group, who arrived in England in the spring of 1943 and swiftly gained the name the Bloody 100th. I wonder if a point of starting us off would be to chat us through how they became known as the Bloody 100th. Well, it, it wasn't a happy designation because uh, that refers to the number of losses that they took. And they didn't lose more bombers than other bomb groups. But the 100th got hit in bunches. And one of the reasons they had that reputation also is because they were undisciplined. 
They were wild, young guys. Uh, they're hellraisers. They had a bad reputation in the States for ill discipline. They almost didn't get sent to Europe as a result. They did a, um, a test flight. They're going to go out to San Francisco. And a lot of the guys just went to their hometowns to see their girlfriends. <laughs> One of them went up to Milwaukee and got a wrench out and dropped the wrench out of the plane. It almost hit somebody and killed them. There was talk of not sending them to England at all. But the need was desperate. They had finished training. They were good pilots. They had some of the best pilots in the 8th. But the Air Force needed to fly in very tight things called combat boxes uh, because they're not utilizing, they're not available, uh, escorts, escort fighters to uh, take them to the target. The escorts, the British Spitfires, and the American Thunderbolts uh, could take them roughly to the German border around Hanover. And that was it. They turned back and you were on your own to Berlin or wherever. So you had to maintain very tight air discipline so that all the guns are congealed and provide a, a mass of fire. And also you didn't want stragglers lagging behind the rest of the group because the Luftwaffe just leapt on those guys, you know, and slaughtered them. So one of the reasons the 100th took those losses is there were large gaps in their flight formations and the Germans penetrated those gaps with rockets and, and fighters. They went right into the formations. They, these were close-in combat operations, as close-in as an infantry battle. So the 100th, they come over to England in the spring of 1943, I think it is. What is the kind of situation when they arrive? What have they been sent over to do? I wonder, could you set us up what's going on in the air war at this point? Well, we're losing the air war. The Allies are, uh, you know are trying to achieve air supremacy that will allow them to land in Normandy, probably in 44, probably in May, although it's pushed back to June. And so they're on the clock. If you consider the May date, you know, they, they have less than a year to achieve an air supremacy they never had. Uh, it, it isn't that they lost air superiority. So in one year, they've got to clear the skies over the Norman beaches or there can be no landing. That was probably the greatest accomplishment of the of the 8th Air Force, to allow the invasion to go forward. And it's rarely mentioned, hardly at all. I go to all the D-Day celebrations in Normandy and things, and I've never heard it mentioned. And when you throw up a number like 18,800 guys, that's how many guys were killed, pilots, Allied pilots, mostly British, Australian, Canadian, American, in the three-month run-up to D-Day, which became a pilot-killing campaign for the 8th Air Force. The Germans continued at, to produce planes at underground factories that were almost impervious to bomb attacks. But later on in the war, they start to run out of gas, and what they really run out of earlier in the war are experienced pilots. As one German pilot told me, every time I pulled close the canopy of my plane, I felt I was pulling down the, the lid to my coffin. And uh, so flying with 20 to 30 hours of training against guys that are Brits and Americans that have 140 and 160 hours of training, it was no match. So by D-Day, Eisenhower's right when he said, if you see a plane over the invasion beach, you can count on it, it'll be ours. And you write in your book that the USA Air Force is doing something quite different in its bombing campaign to the RAF. 
I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that difference. Well, the RAF's, you know, the bomber war, and it's the only bomber war in world history. And we'll never see another one because of missile technology. But they get into this much earlier than the Americans. They get into the war a lot earlier than the Americans. And, uh, and they get pounded, of course, initially on the ground and, and have to mount a, a massive evacuation, uh, where they remove their continental army back to England and prepare for what was thought to be a, an imminent German invasion. This didn't happen, but uh, every indication was that it would happen. And they started to bomb by daylight, hitting shipping mostly at sea and port facilities. And they weren't hitting their targets. Bombing was radically inaccurate. And in addition, they're taking catastrophic casualties. So they just got frustrated and said the only way we can continue this campaign, this bombing campaign, is to go in at night where it's hard to see us. Germans had good searchlights with radar on it, but it was still hard to see these bombers. And in addition, stop hitting precision targets. We're going to do saturation bombing. They called it area bombing. A less elegant term for it would be slaughter bombing because there's no distinction between combatants and non-combatants. They just emulated huge areas of the city. And this is a campaign of uh, a guy called Arthur Harris, Butcher Harris, he was called, uh, who was head of Bomber Command. But it had the full support, the enthusiastic support of Winston Churchill. The British thought the Americans were crazy to bomb in day. The Germans had good radar on their guns, infinitely more effective in daylight. Their fighter force could easily reach the bombers. There was a myth before the war. The Americans deluded themselves into believing that they could fly higher than any German fighter, and that the German fighters would stall out going up after them or freeze out uh, in the uh, uh, 62 to 65 below zero temperatures. Neither force was able to achieve absolute, you know, precision bombing in the war. They had some great raids where they hit the target head on. But uh, there's always going to be elements of inaccuracy and lots of spillover and civilian casualties. It's the price that was paid for the campaign. I mean, speaking of casualties, that to what extent does the American reliance on daytime bombing contribute to their losses? A lot. If it's a clear day, you get up in the morning and the sun's shining and the air is clear, it's a wonderful day for flying, but it's not a good day for flying and fighting because they can see you. So uh, flying in daytime was a perilous business. Uh, Harrison Salisbury, the New York Times, said that to hold a, a card to the 8th Air Force is to hold a ticket to your own funeral. Your chances of surviving in the first year of operations uh, is about one in three. And when you got to 15 missions... You flew 25. They raised that later to 30 or 35. When you got to 15 missions, statistically, you were a dead man. You had no chance of surviving. And uh, total for, for the war is the Americans lost um, about 26,000 killed. 77% of men and boys who flew for the 8th Air Force were casualties by the end of the war. So... Suicide missions is what they were. And writing this book and, and making this film, the preeminent question on our minds incessantly was, how in the hell did they get back in those planes? 
What do you think the answer to that is? I think a lot of it had to do with shame of not flying, the fear of letting down your comrades. They knew what they were facing. They're flying for country, but they're also flying in order to get home. And the only way to get home was to continue to kill and get to 25 and, uh, and get release from the operations. And that's not the only problem. There's a lot of combat fatigue, as it was euphemistically called, post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of breakdowns in the planes. And that started to become an issue as early as 42, 43, before the um, 100th got there. There's lots of things I'd like to pick up on there, but uh, probably one place to go back to is the planes themselves. So the 100th would have been flying B-17 flying fortresses. Can you tell us a bit about that plane? Like how big is a crew? What was it like to fly in? Well, that was the first American heavy bomber and um, developed around 1935-36, not flying operationally, of course, until it arrived in England and and flew the first time in August of 42. Uh, when you see it on the ground, if you go to Duxford and places like that, it, 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 it looks pretty imposing. It is a, it's a war machine. It had up to 12 cannons, uh, 50 caliber machine guns, which very powerful machine gun and with a lot of range. And, uh, and they flew in these, as I said, these combat boxes, which congealed the, the punch and, uh, the Germans weren't keen on attacking. They called it the Boeings because they were made by the Boeing Company. They weren't keen on attacking the Boeings. But then Adolf Galan, the fighter leader, had them change tactics before they were coming up against them from the rear. That's the German fighter leader. Yeah, Adolf. yeah, exactly. Galan. And he had them tactically hitting the rear of the plane. And uh, fewer guns back there. And what the Germans started to do, they'd fly right by the bombers, outside of their range, parallel with them, to try to scare the hell out of them. And uh, these are Fockels, and uh, largely the, the best German fighter plane that replaced the Messerschmitt. And they would fly ahead a couple of miles, turn, and then in a line on echelon, about 8 to 12 planes would go tearing into the bomber formation at closing speeds of about 600 miles an hour, 300 on each side. And they'd go after, of course, what is the most vulnerable spot in the formation, which is the front. There's where the pilot and co-pilot are, and the pilot might be piloting not just his plane, but leading an entire fighter wing uh, or bomber wing of hundreds of planes. The fuel tanks were in the wings. The bombardier was right in the front of the plane, sitting inside a plexiglass cone that was not uh, protected in any way, not, you know, not bomb-proof or bulletproof, and the navigator's up there. So that's, that's the point of vulnerability. And they started to really hurt the Air Force's effectiveness. And the Air Force itself, under Curtis LeMay, who was later known for his fire raids against Japan, he insisted that the crews fly straight and level right into the flak, that when they saw it in front of them, they not take evasive action. My God, I can imagine sitting in the cone of that plane. And the bombardier can't look straight ahead anyway. He's got to look through his aiming device, his so-called Norton bombsite. And he's looking through this Norton bombsite straight at the ground and trying to fly the plane 
because at that point, the, the pilot transferred control of the plane to the bombardier. So I don't know how those guys survived or, or, or even stuck to their guns, as it were, uh, which is where the expression comes from. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah. Could you give us a bit more of a flavour about what it is like to fight in that environment? Because it's something like 25,000 feet in the air, I think, if I've got that right. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're about four miles up. And it is the most perilous combat in history. There's no combat that was rougher than the 10 to 15 minutes. It happens very fast that a bomber is attacked by a group of German fighter planes. The attacks are simultaneous. You're getting hit from all sides. And you're inside a plexiglass and aluminum tube. The flak around you uh, could pierce easily the, uh, the aluminum. And everything happened at one time. And this is what we try to portray in, in the film and what I try to portray in the book, what, what it was like to be inside the plane. Lots of pilots were beheaded, uh, had their heads knocked off by German rockets. Uh, and Germans are aiming for their heads. And uh, maybe he's screaming for help. Uh, to try to, the guy, guy might have fallen on a steering mechanism and you couldn't get him off. Or he needed help to just hold on to the plane, which is a very tough plane to handle. So he calls to the back of the plane, but the guy he's calling to maybe had some flight training, but he couldn't leave his position because he's tending to a wounded comrade who might have a wound on his chest and he has to put his hand on it to keep him from bleeding out if he pulls his hand away. He goes to the front. He might help to save the plane, but he loses his buddy. His buddy will bleed out in no time. You're flying in an unheated plane, and it's 55 in, in, in the winter over Berlin. It's 55 to 65, below zero inside the thing. And they didn't have a keen sense of how damaging uh, frostbite was and weren't warmed about some of the dangers of frostbite. So guns would jam. And the guys in the fury of combat would pull off their gloves and with their bare hands try to clear the jam. 
And of course, your flesh sticks to the metal of the guns, and you just pull raw flesh away. In addition, you can't breathe, because over 11,000 feet, you need oxygen to live up there. Um, these men go to war in machines, and if the machines break down, they're done. There was a, a little, almost like a ping pong ball inside the hose that you could see that bounced up and down. And you knew then that you're getting oxygen because it's often hard to discern that you're getting it. But sometimes you don't have uh, the opportunity in combat uh, under attack to look down. Your oxygen might be closed off. Closed off by what? By freezing. And especially if you vomited into the mask, uh, your vomit would freeze and clog the air passages. And in 30 to 45 seconds, you'd pass out. And in a minute and a half, you'd be dead. So the weather and the elements are as much danger as the Luftwaffe. And stomach problems from the gaseous foods they ate before they went up. They tried to correct a lot of these things as they went along. And that's the thing about the bomber war. It's an experiment. Nobody had ever done it before. Army had doctrine. The Navy had doctrine. An infantry unit could get, you know, pinned down, but try to get out, do a counterattack, take cover. There's no such thing as taking cover inside that plane. The side portals where the machine guns stuck out were open to the air. So blasts of air came through there and compounded, you know, the, the freezing uh, conditions inside the plane. And there's noise, there's tremendous noise inside the plane from the, the engines and the machine gun fire. The smells are awful. You got the smells of cigarette smoke. They smoke before they hit 11,000 feet. You get the smells of cordite. You get the smells of blood, screams of men. That's complete chaos. There are no medics at, at four miles high. Some of the guys had syringes with morphine, and uh, they could stick a morphine syringe into a comrade, put a blanket over him, and put him down on the freezing floor of the plane and hope he survives the mission. But that's about all you could do. I was really surprised when I was uh, reading the book and watching the show just how how much the elements played a part. They're a major character, absolutely. You had to be so aware of, of, of the conditions. Don't forget... You're flying from an island, England. The weather might be good on takeoff, and you get clearance. But the weather on the way to the target might be miserable. Or it's okay all the way to the target, but by the time you get to the target, say Hamburg, the target's you know, socked in, and uh, you don't know where the Germans are. And um, then you got to return to England, and you don't know what conditions are back at base. So there are at least six or seven junctures in the uh, in the mission when the weather could go terribly wrong on you and engines could freeze up and uh, navigators in the clouds could get lost. And uh, it's it, it was really tough. It was really tough to handle. And, you know, we were, we were all a lot slower in really cold weather. and uh, And we have our minds on that as well. And when you're in that bomber, there's this sense of you're in a cage. You can't get out. You're trapped. Whatever happens to you happens to you, and there's not much you can do about it. You were saying about how on the tarmac, you know, the B-17, it's quite a presence. Yeah. It looks quite formidable. But once it's in the air, it suddenly feels a bit less secure. Yeah, my uncle used to say he was in the, first, in the big red one, the first division. Uh, they were 
first to land on Normandy. And he used to say, I don't know how they do it. Up there, that high, completely exposed, a flying gas tank, if you will, vulnerable to German guns, which were very accurate. I don't think the savagery uh, and the, um, the terror of flying missions is adequately portrayed in the literature uh, that, that I was looking at before I wrote this book. And we tried to bring that home in the film. Spielberg built two B-17s, but he built the third B-17 with a wider body. You don't see it from the outside. So the cameraman could get in there, our cameraman, the shots of what's happening inside the plane. Because in the film, Masters of the Air, the major action doesn't occur like in a jet fighter plane, uh, you know, the, the Tom Cruise type film. The action here is inside the cockpit. That's where the drama is. How to survive? Will you survive? Will you get to the target? Will you bomb the target? This is what we focused on primarily. And then afterwards, how you live with this, because there's not a lot of closure. It's an awful thing for parents to lose young ones in war and and have them unidentified, uh, will never see their mortal remains. But when bombers were hit in the air and downed, immediately someone radioed back to base that, you know, Sonny Boy, this bomber, is done. It crash-landed, you know, over the channel. And word went right to base, and that cruise, bunks in, in the barracks um, were stripped, and um, every everything that that kid owned, everything that was precious to him, maybe some rosary beads or a photograph or a picture of his girlfriend or a letter home or some sort of token he took he forgot to take along for good luck, all that disappears. So the airmen return sometimes to... Uh, sleeping quarters that, you know, have been depleted by 60%. So the next morning on your baseball team, you've lost your second baseman, center field, right fielder, and catcher. And where'd they go? Um, well, they were turned into particles um, in, a, in a horrible air explosion or air crash, or they're in a German stalag. No one knew. So that was another thing about the operation, you know. The the thing that people say is, well, you know, I mean, they had women and they had beer and they lived in villages and they had civilization all around them, as opposed to Ernie Piles, Mud Rain and, and Snow Boys, uh, who fought, you know, nonstop, uh, up the Italian boot. Both had it horrible. I'm not trying to say one was worse than the other, but intermittent fighting was pretty rough on the nerves because, because Kev, you hit it right on the nose. Going out on the tarmac at four in the morning, getting out there and sitting there and waiting for the weather to clear was really nerve-wracking. Uh, you're going to fly that day. You're going to die that day. And then a lot of those missions are scrubbed. You're not flying. You're not dying. And they wanted them to go because they wanted to get to their 25. In that run-up to D-Day, they're being used as bait. Oh, for the, to destroy the fighters. Yes, to get the Germans to come up. Because at that point in the war, finally, we deploy a hybrid plane developed by the British and the Americans, a P-51 Mustang, almost as fast as a jet, 
and very nimble. And before it was considered a technological impossibility to develop a plane that was heavy enough to carry a lot of fuel and nimble enough to survive in dogfights. Well, they developed it, and uh, and they started to mass produce it in late fall of 43, and they got it in the war in January of 44, just in the nick of time. And it turned the war, because now we wanted the Luftwaffe to come up because we could handle them. And the fighters were told by General Doolittle, James Doolittle, who takes over the Air Force at this time, just before D-Day, he saw a plaque on the fighter commander's wall that said, the first duty of a fighter pilot is to protect the bombers. He said, that ain't true. The first duty of a fighter pilot is to go after and kill the Luftwaffe on the ground and in the air, parked and flying. And that's what they did. When they saw the Germans coming up, they left the bombers, the bait, and they went after the Germans, and they continued to pursue them right to the to their air bases and to strafe those air bases. I wonder if we could talk about the crews a bit more. So let's say I'm in one of these crews and uh, my B-17 has been shot up and I have to jump out of the plane. So I've jumped out, my chute's gone, I'm going down, but I'm otherwise fine. What happens to me? Let's say I'm over occupied Europe. What are my chances of evading capture? Not good. There was one chance, really, and that was to get picked up by friendly forces. All over Belgium and, and France, there were safe houses and things called escape lines. One of the more famous was called the Comet Line, run by a woman named D.D. And uh, her and her father established a safe house and an escape route where these young girls, I'm talking about girls 17 years old, 18 years old, would escort two or three airmen at a time uh, by train, through the villages of northern France, down to Paris, by train again to the foothills of the Pyrenees. And then they'd hire local guides to uh, get them across the, uh, the mountains into neutral Spain. And the hope being that Franco's not going to get too hard-ass about it and go after them, and they could get picked up, hopefully, in Gibraltar, uh, which held on throughout the war you know, as a British possession. So guys did get out, and when they got back to base, it created tremendous enthusiasm. Now there's a chance, not just death or a stalag, because when the air war got really rough, and that is when the bombing became exceedingly intense following D-Day, and we're burning out these German cities, if you learn, landed near one of these annihilated German cities while it's still on fire, the citizenry uh, would be pretty rough on you. Lots of airmen were thrown into rivers, thrown into the fires, um, had their hands wired behind their backs or tied behind their backs and, uh, and were emulated by fire. So those who landed in um, Germany itself, even though, I mean, theoretically they'd be prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions, they would might find themselves abused, tortured, worse? It's a good question. You stood a much better chance of being captured by what were called the Luftwaffe police. Hermann Goering ran the Luftwaffe, second in command in the Reich, and he did not believe in torture as a way of pulling information from the airmen, so they were interrogated but not tortured. 
and nor were they tortured in their prison camps. They didn't have proper food or health facilities. It was not a life of unalloyed joy, believe me. But um, they weren't physically, you know, messed with generally. And because he feared that the British would take reprisals against his airmen who were in prison camps in Scotland and Ireland. So the Luftwaffe police, you know, had their stock expression for you, the war's over. And off you went to an interrogation center where they seemed to know everything about you. And uh, so much so that guys kind of broke down a little bit and divulged information they shouldn't have divulged because the Germans seemed to know everything. And, and what they'd been doing is um, they had a communication lines with German-Americans in places like Yorktown in New York, a very German section, Detroit and whatnot. And they would send them German-American publications, high school yearbooks, Issues of Stars and Stripes, the Yankee paper. And Stars and Stripes, when it covered guys in the war, it would say, John Jacobs from so-and-so, uh, Chicago, South Side address. His dog's name is Jerky. His wife's name, his sister's name. He plays on the football team. And they kept these amazing files, paper files, of, and they'd pull them out, and they had them cross-indexed. And they had a guy named Scharf, who was a master interrogator. You know, he'd give you a cigarette, maybe a shot of schnapps, and try to relax you and say, look, we know what you know. We're just trying to verify it. We know about your parents, et cetera, et cetera. You were put in a, a cattle car and taken to a stalag, where you spent the war. And here, the dispiriting thing, not just incarceration, but the kind of incarceration it was, uh, as one airman told me, you could go hold up a convenience store in London or Detroit and, and you get three to five years. There, you don't know what your sentence is. It, it's indeterminate. You are there till the Germans win or lose the war. And, uh, and if they lose the war, it could be very rough on you. Um, they could use you as human shields. They could just shoot you. And at the end of the war, I mean, they suffered tremendously because they were moved in February from positions out near Poland, near Silesia and the Baltic, and to keep them out of the hands of the Russians. So they moved these prisoners, these alive prisoners, almost all of whom were airmen. And no one knows what's going to happen, and the men are uprooted and taken out. Now, a lot of them weren't keen on leaving. They at least knew that inside the camp, they were going to be pretty safe. They were relatively warm. Uh, the food was hard, but um, they, they were alive. But once you left that camp, everything was up in the air. Uh, you had to mar march across the heart of Germany in the middle of the war and through the very villages and towns that you bombed. So like one airman said, I'd pass a, an old, just a pile of ruins that was once the house of an old woman, a German grandma, who was sitting on the ruins. And I thought, I did that to her and her family. And then he said, that night we stayed in a small German death camp, and we saw the bodies hanging on hooks and things like that. And I was happy that we were able to get into the war with enough time to save at least some of these people. And, and the war seemed to make sense to them, and a lot more sense than it had before. 
But they were also attacked in these small towns by German civilians who had just had their homes bombed. What would you do if you lived in a small British town and were annihilated in a raid and three-quarters of the population, including three-quarters of your family, was killed? And all of a sudden, the so-called killer, the terror fliegers or terror bombers, as the Germans called it, were parading through town. You attacked them. And so men died on these marches. Two people you write about on that march, and I can't quite believe we haven't spoken about them already, are John Egan and Gail Clevin. And, you know, those uh, two, both majors in the uh, the 100th Bomb Group, they're almost the protagonists of the Master of the Air TV series, but are also two of the characters with which an interaction between, or involving them is how you open your book. I just wonder what you could tell us about them and their real-life selves. They and a guy named Crosby, a navigator, and Rosenthal, a pilot, are the four leading characters in the film. And the two guys I first confronted in the manuscript collections and letters and things were John Egan and Gail Clevin. And they had met before the war in Texas in training and were bosom buddies. Although they were dramatically different, Clevin was big, strong, powerfully built guy, came from oil country in the Northwest. His father was an alcoholic. He had a haunted childhood and pretty much raised himself self-sufficient. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, had a girlfriend, was loyal to her, didn't hit the pubs, but was a spectacular flyer and commanded great respect around the base for his intrepidity and his, his general leadership qualities. And he's hanging around with his opposite, um, John Egan. Uh, John is, um, from a little town in Wisconsin, although you'd never know it because he spoke like he was from Fifth Avenue in New York. He loved New York. He loved the Yankees. He loved the nightlife. He loved the big plays. He was in the pubs every night, chasing a pint, chasing a girl. He lived high and hard. He really did. When he went out on the town, Clevin never went with him. He stayed behind and wrote letters home. But they were inseparable during the war because they were both great leaders and they were both great fighters. So they were the emotional leaders uh, of the group. Rosenfall, you've mentioned a couple of times, he was another pilot, but he seems to almost be the outlier in what we've talked about, as in he was shot down three times, he made it back three times. He's incredible. I mean, he's why I wrote the book. I, I met him first. I, you're always searching around for a great character, a great story. And I was down at Savannah at the 8th Air Force Museum looking for information. And they were having some kind of conference they'd invited me to. And um, I went into his talk, and uh, I was transfixed. And then met him later outside the museum, met his family, and began visiting on a regular basis his home in Upper New York State. And he's an incredible character. He um, came from a very poor Jewish family in Brooklyn. And he was an All-American, All-American football and basketball player. Went to law school and got a great job a job of a lifetime, as he saw it, on Wall Street. And the week he started, um, the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor, and he, he was at the recruiting station that Monday, signed up. He arrived in England a little later than uh, Clevin and Egan. He, he came there as a replacement. They were losing guys like crazy, and he arrives alone as a replacement. 
So he is an outlier at first and has to prove himself. But he, like Egan and Clevin, he was a spectacular flyer. He had always wanted to be a fighter pilot. He could he'd fly that bomber like a fighter plane. He, more than anyone else, installed discipline in the flying formations of the 100th and got fewer guys killed and, and won their respect because he flew with the men. And he did it without braggadocio. He had a chance to go home. I mean, uh, he re-upped for the third time. He did his 25 missions twice. Yeah, yeah. He uh, eventually wound up with 52. When he was asked about it, he uh, said, as long as, as long as Hitler lives, I fly. And it's not because I'm a Jew, it's because I'm a human being and what he's doing to humanity. So he did. Uh, he was shot down three times. The last time he was shot down, he was on a big raid over Berlin in February. And uh, he was shot down over Russian territory. The Russians were in a firefight with the Germans and captured by the uh, Soviet, by the Red Army troops. They almost killed him. They found him in a ditch and we're going to gun him down. But he jumped up and started screaming, Babe Ruth, lucky strike, you know, Coca-Cola. Any American stereotype you thought I might know. Yeah, exactly. And he was taken back to Moscow and met Avril Harriman, our ambassador. Back to the States. He wanted to re-up when he got back home, but the war was over. The bombs had been dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But he got himself re-enlisted and... Uh, assigned to the Nuremberg trials as a prosecutor. And on the way over, on the troop ship on the way over, he met another prosecutor, Phyllis. They fell in love. And um, Rosie had a great sense of humor. He said, well, it was either love or seasickness, but it was good. <laughs> and they stayed for the trials, prosecuted the Germans who did some heinous things to American airmen, prosecuted the, the Germans who ran Muna and places like that, the underground slave labor camps. And they married in, Ber in Nuremberg and had a child, and he had his closure. <laughs> yeah. I could keep asking questions about this all day, but in a way to bring this to a conclusion, I have one final brief question for you. How important were the American bomber boys to World War II? Extremely important. They helped to knock out the submenace uh, before they would bomb the actual sub-pens where they were repaired and things. But these were protected by six-foot-thick reinforced concretes. And uh, they started to use under pressure. This, the Air Force wanted to keep its planes flying strategically against cities, but they were under pressure to release large numbers of liberators which had long range and, and they went out on sub-hunting campaigns with hunter-killer teams of pocket aircraft carriers with two or three planes on them and they knocked the Germans U-boat threat out of the Central Pacific by late 43 and so like the Luftwaffe they're not there on D-Day I think the other contribution is there is no D-Day uh, unless those fighter fights occur and the run-up to D-Day. Before that, bombing is negligible in terms of its impact. It's attritional, but it's not major. Later on in the war, it does become major because they, in conclusion, they find an Achilles heel. They, uh, instead of hitting the electrical system or ball-bearing plants or you know, whatever, they would hit 
the German transportation system, and they created a coal shortage. And they started to hit them in these marshalling yards where the trains from various parts of Germany carrying zinc and steel and all kinds of things would reassemble. They started to hammer these um, these transportation nodes, as they called them, and uh, Germany couldn't move anything. They also knocked out their canal system. And without mobility, as the German generals pointed out, they, you know, they didn't stand a chance. And again, it goes back to my remark about a thousand blows. You don't knock a oil facility out in, in a day or a week. You knock it out in 23 or 24 missions. And we had enough planes to run those kinds of missions. And so by the time we're ready to jump into Germany, we've pretty much, not pretty much, we've disabled the German economy. They don't have an industrial economy by that point. Now, you can't say that the bombers won the war. I mean, what about the infantry? What about the Navy? I mean, it, it, it's like Neptune's trident, the, the, three, uh, the three services. But they made a much greater contribution than they're given credit for. That was Donald L. Miller, the author of Masters of the Air, How the Bomber Boys Took Down the Nazi War Machine. The TV series Masters of the Air is streaming now on Apple TV+. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 